in a stable trying to calm the horses spooked by the name Frau Blucher. It's the IGN Digigods. Now two men who will tell you they have enormous Schwanstukers, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Oh, man, that was an awesome intro. Corey, to whom do we owe that? That was written by Nicholas Gordon, making me uncomfortable, sort of speaking German. <laughs> that was a lot of fun sound editing before the, uh, before the show. You hired someone to do that, didn't you? you yeah, that's that exa- no, of course not, because I'm all butterfingers. <laughs> just, like, uh, just like Bilbo Baggins. Can't hang on to anything. Is that a Lord of the Rings thing? Yeah, you've seen you've seen the, the Hobbit, the whole Hobbit trilogy. I have not seen any of the Hobbit films. Are you serious? Couldn't care less. Really? I, I you know what? I've I already suffered through ten hours of Lord of the Rings. The, the, the we ho- gave him Best Picture. The, it's fine. The Hobbit films are. I, I like them better. I do. I like them better. But how, how does the Hobbit? I like Martin Freeman a lot. I, I so think he's I, great, he and I, I I like the story a little better. Um, I just like the characters better. Billy Connolly shows up as a dwarf. You can't beat that. Um, How does it uh, stack up to Doctor Who? We have a Doctor Who book this week. We sure do. And it's interesting that that comes now because uh, there have been a lot of Doctor Who references on the uh, on the Facebook page. Uh, we have the unofficial Doctor Who, the big book of lists from Cameron K. McEwen. Now, um, I'll be the first one to say that I, uh, I'm not the audience for this book. Uh, it looks very nice. So I'm really gonna. I will. I will really uh, it's, judge it's, it basically on its layout and the quality of the paper. It's, so based on the layout and the quality of the paper, this is a fine book. It is. No, it's it's actually it's actually really cool. Uh, this is you know obviously for Doctor Who fanatics, but uh, when you when it comes to something like Doctor Who that's been on the on the air as long as this has, you can make some pretty unwieldy lists. And uh, there's some fun stuff in here. Uh, I am obviously not as, as as big of a Who fanatic as others, but there's an interesting, like, here example. TV shows, the, the, uh, the Doctor Who references. Like, Doctor Who actually references other television shows. And it's fascinating. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Scooby-Doo, uh, Star Trek, of course, gets a reference. Teletubbies gets a reference. I now, no why idea. have they not done a, a Doctor Who movie? Um, th- boy, that's a whole separate. Uh, that's a whole class of things unto itself. I think there was a Doctor Who movie like before we were born that may have been released in theaters, but I'm not positive about that. But that's uh, but I but I know I know there have been endless conversations among uh, certain executives at BBC and elsewhere about uh, about whether to do that. And and as I understand it. The reasoning is this. Doctor Who lives on television. It's a television phenomenon. The continuity is entirely television-based. And the feeling is there's not enough of a hardened audience that would go buy tickets outside of, you know, Doctor Who people to justify it. Well, because you'd have to spend $180 million and you would on have Doctor to, Who movie. And you would have to spend the first 90 minutes basically bringing people who are not all, all, uh, part of the Doctor Who world up to speed on what, you know, the, the, the Time Lord means and what well, the TARDIS is. Well, and the question is, does it become... It, it just... It, you, you, is you, it an origin two, story? The exposition, the exposition required would be obnoxious. Yeah, but look at... Uh, and this is a horrible example because the movie yeah. sucked. But look at Dark Shadows. They made a Dark Shadows oh, movie, which dreadful. is a terrible film. Dreadful. But what I'm saying is that it, it stood apart from the Dark Shadows TV show. Yes. And that's fine. Yeah, I don't think they want to do that. They, they want the movie to be 
actors, part of the continuity of actors the- who appear in classic and new Who. Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Linda Barron. It's interesting. Okay, why are we talking about that anyway. instead of the gift I got? Yeah, that's right. So uh, go ahead, talk about the gift. Well, this of course came from Axel Axel Peronial. Thank you, who sent us uh, uh, copies of of the the rare Charlie Ebdo's. That's right, which I'm staring at which, right now. There it is. Uh, phenomenal. Thank you, Axel. Thank you, Axel. You are you are a mensch, and we appreciate that. And that is really that is so thoughtful. I don't even know. I don't even know how to how to express it because we're a couple of cold fish here when it comes to you know emotional connection and whatnot. No, I'm quite an emotional man. Oh, I've, I've been known yeah. to cry at sporting events, dog food commercials, <laughs> games when the Mets lose. Let me, the Mets are the best team in baseball. Are they really? You realize the Mets are the best team I in baseball right I, now. Not, no, I the Mets had an 11 game hitting. Uh, I just know that there was some 11 guy, game winning streak. I just know there's like some Taiwanese player whose last name is Who, and he may he, and he got a base hit, and now everybody's like, well, "Hey, who's on first? Hey, Abbott and Costello were right seven years later, and it became a big internet joke. That's Wade, all I know." Wade, what the Mets? Yeah, are the best team in baseball. They have the best record. Yeah, you realize it's, that. It's, it's, but and by the way, I'm, it's only April. And by the way, I am gloating like you would not believe because in about three weeks they'll be in the middle of a 14 game <laughs> losing streak. Okay, so Axel, uh, uh, he sent me something. Now, I see it says for NARC. Now, uh, now I don't know if they... Uh, That's an M. It's really not. Uh, Axel, I have to M. say that it says for NARC. Now, are you <laughs> saying that I'm a NARC? Am I that nerdy that you think I'm like, uh, I would you like just, rat you out? You just don't know European handwriting script very <laughs> well. True. Now, I, do, do I know what this is, Wade? No, you don't. Have I, I, don't, I, I, don't I, I don't even know what this is. Have I opened this up? We have no idea. I'm going to open it up right now. He just says he added a little something for you, and uh, hope you'll, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Here it is. It's never been released in the U.S. And it's not Camembert. That's okay. what he said. I'm opening up right now. It's very exciting. All and right, want, here we want, go. Here. This, is, this is like 50s television. Motherfucker! <laughs> yes! Oh, do I have to? No! Yes! <laughs> yes! This is the greatest gift well, now hang on a second. No, so this is uh, now this you can well, you can watch this without uh, French subtitles or French audio, right? You just watch it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. God Should be. damn it! This is the greatest <laughs> gift I've ever been given, including my parents. <laughs> Please enjoy this special feature uh, Blu-ray for Team America, only released in Europe. Now out of now out of print. It is supposed to be region free. Thank you for all your jokes, your expertise, and cooking advice all over the years. Uh, take care, Axel. This is the greatest gift I've ever wow. been given by anybody. Because I didn't know what it could be. I'm like, what could this be? Like Escape from New York? It just came out. That's Some Star fantastic. Trek Two thing that this is like unbelievable. I cannot thank Axel, you enough, Axel. I'm 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 sort of in awe of of that's that's an awesome gift. That's cool. That should, is really cool. Thank you, you. Should you bleep out what I nah? Don't bleep it out. <laughs> I, I had no idea what it was. In post production, I will put a little. Uh, I'll put one of Corey's little uh, Jerry Lewis things over it. So everyone who's listening to this will already know that. Okay, well, do me a favor. Yes. Keep the mother part. Yes. And most of the effort part. Okay, <laughs> I, I want people will. to know my actual true reaction I was. Will. Yes. This is like the greatest gift I've ever, ever been given. First of all, by a, by a, a, a yes. parent, a sibling, <laughs> of which I have none. Santa Claus. Santa the, Claus. The Easter Bunny. Yenta Claus, because I'm Jewish. Yeah. I, you know what? I didn't even want to open this. Because I feel like if I open it, it'll, like, it'll ruin his beautifulness. Yeah. <laughs> it's you realize I was the only person in Alaska to name this one of the top ten films of the decade. That's yeah, good for you. You know what? But but remember, Luke Thompson also named The Room one of the top ten films of the decade. So I cannot believe I got this. That's, That's so awesome. unbelievably cool. Thank Actually, you so you are much. awesome. Thank you, man. 
Wow. Well, uh, you know what? I'm actually gonna keep the envelope too. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna put the. I'm gonna put the, the Blu-ray in the envelope, and then in my um, keep and the, the letter and too. The letter, and then in my uh, Blu-ray case, I'll I'll put it under T, and people will be like, "Why is that Blu-ray in a brown envelope?" And I'm gonna be, "Well, I have a story." Because well, one of our most beloved listeners sent me a gift, and a gift that was greatly appreciated. Thank you very, very, this too. Thank you very, while very we're, much. Uh, while we're at it, let's, let's uh, in honor of Axel, let's go through some foreign films. And I'm going to hit some French films here right, uh, right quickly. A uh, Audrey Tautou, the wonderful, delightful Audrey Tautou, in a film by uh, Laetitia Colombani, who I'm not terribly familiar with, but there are tons of great uh, filmmakers in France and all over Europe that I'm not that familiar with. This is from First Run Features, and uh, Audrey Tautou is always just completely delightful. Uh, especially well, I'm going to put this on my shelf right now, actually. Go, you talk about whatever crap that is. I will. Anyway, uh, this is just another Audrey Tattoo love story, uh, romantic comedy. But you know what? It, 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 she's always good in them. She's, the, the romantic comedies are kind of a dead genre in the U.S., but they continue to thrive in France, and thank God, because they've got great actresses like Audrey. Uh, anyway, the basic idea, she's, uh, she's in love with a married guy, a married doctor, who's, uh, who's going to soon be a father. And um, she resorts to measures that are rather unsavory. And uh, then there are some really interesting little twists and turns. And in the end, you wind up just being incredibly charmed and, and, and sweetened by the whole thing. Uh, also from First Run Features is a film called Vandal uh, by a filmmaker named Elie Cisterne. Also, someone I am not familiar with, um, and this is actually probably going to be of interest more to people who are a little bit more familiar with French, uh, the you know French social situations uh, presently. Um, very much a social criticism, as a lot of French dramas are these days, uh, dealing specifically with uh, immigrant groups in uh, in French urban uh, environments, and in this case, it's you know the the, the, the it deals with youth with uh, graffiti and tagging and all of that. Um, uh, if you know the, the milieu, if you know the environment, it's a pretty hard-hitting film, but also very, very touching. Uh, playing Dead, uh, yeah, Jean-Paul Salomé uh, is a, a filmmaker I'm vaguely familiar with, and uh, I wasn't overly thrilled with this. It's, uh, it's kind, of a, kind of a dark, comedic-y thriller. Um, kind of a kind of a whodunit, kind of a thriller. It didn't completely work for me. Uh, I but it, you know it's it's stylish enough to sort of be engaging. Um, Isabel Huppert in uh, Briante Mendoza's film Captive is absolutely outstanding. She is better than the film. Uh, this is actually not a uh, French language film. This is in English and Tagalog because it's uh, it takes place in the Philippines and deals with a uh, hostage situation. And uh, it's 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 it means to be really well done, but it's mostly about her performance, and uh, and that's been fair enough, you know. Uh, Isabel Huppert is just absolutely amazing. And then, uh, lastly, on this batch, from Cohen in a fantastic two-film Blu-ray set, a couple of Philippe de Broca films uh, for the first time ever on Blu-ray. That Man from Rio 
uh, and up to his ears, both of them with Jean-Paul Belmondo, and uh, these are classics. These are just absolutely wonderful films. If you've never seen That Man from Rio, you are absolutely seriously missing out. And and I want to dovetail this just for a second, uh, especially That Man from Rio. That is just great. Now, Philippe de Broca, by the way, those who don't know, Philippe de Broca is one of the great French directors of all time, a master stylist, great with all genres. His films, uh, if there's one thing in common with de Broca's films, it is that they are big and opulent and stylish, and they just have a, there's a big screen, big movie sensibility to all of them. And... He really knows how to dress everything up. And these are just so much fun. And Belmondo is absolutely fantastic. Um, what I will say about this is that man from Rio, if you're a fan of the uh, OSS 117 films. Which the, I am. Which you are and which I am. You will love this. Because it's a spy spoof. But it's a spy spoof from the era of spy spoofs. And uh, it's just great. It's just so much fun. It is, uh, it's smart and uh, it's great. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's, a, that, that's a, a wonderful collaboration, actually, between De Broca and uh, Jean-Paul Rapneau, who, of course, be, you know, would go on to do uh, 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 Cyrano de Bergerac and a lot of other great films. Um, uh, and speaking of OSS 117, you know what I did a few days ago, don't you? You uh, made a spy spoof and had it released in uh, France. I was I moderated the Q and A with uh, Michel Azanavicius at uh, Colcoa because they showed uh, OS, the first OSS one seventeen film as part of the Colcoa Classics uh, screening, which is weird because it wasn't that long ago. It was just two thousand and eight, and I was actually the jury president the year that they had that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, has it been that long? But I guess it has. So anyway, I had the wonderful chance to sit down and have a an hour long Q and A with him in front of the audience, and it was it was wonderful. Talked a little bit, uh, talked a lot about the OSS one seventeen films, how they're shot, and you know how he emphasized the day for night photography. It was really interesting. They actually cranked up the blues in the day for night. Did you know that? I did not know. Isn't that, that interesting? Now, did you know that, or did he reveal that? He revealed that. Well, I asked him. I said specifically because I said you you made a very conscious effort to emulate the look of of films from the era, including shooting day for night. Which you know, no one does anymore. So I mean, it was it was it was specific that he said we're going to shoot our night scenes day for night so that they look like those old old movies in the fifties and sixties. And uh, he said, yeah, because now with digital tools, you can really really turn the blue up and you can pick your blue and and really give it the uh, the period look. So anyway, also talked about his new film, The Search, which was at Cannes last year. They trimmed it a little bit since Cannes, and uh, and that's going to be coming out soon, which is a, a completely dramatic film. You know, it's based on the old Fred Zinnemann film from 1948, and uh, the, except it's no longer World War II, but now it's set in the the Second Chechenian War. It's really good. So uh, he, you know what? He could be the uh, the Michael Winterbottom. He does comedies. Yeah. He does dramas. Does a lot of different things. What do, you, what do you think? Before we dive into the rest of the, the foreign language stuff, what do you think about uh, the the new film that Winterbottom is allegedly ta- attached to? Which is that? You didn't hear about this? No. Oh my gosh! It's it is uh, it, Robert Simons, right? The super producer who's just got this new studio funded, STX Studios, right? Okay, so Simons is building this big slate of like fifteen films a year. He's going out hard. I mean, it's really impressive. And it's it, you know he's going to launch big. He's not starting small. Like, well, I'm going to do two films a year, and eventually, no. He's like, we're coming out of the gate with like 15 movies a year, and we are going to be a studio, and you know, we're we're a player. And one of those films is going to be the story of Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert. Oh, doing, that's right. Doing uh, Beyond the Valley of the it's Dolls. Great. Which is a great story. But Winterbottom apparently is attached to direct it. Guess who's attached to play Russ Meyer? Uh, Crispin Glover. You could not get someone who looks more the part. 
but I, I wonder if it's almost going to be a camp performance. Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell is going to play Russ Meyer. And Jonah Hill will play Roger Ebert. Uh, probably. Probably. I mean, that would, that, would sort of, that would sort of lock it down. But it's like, wow, that's, that is really interesting casting. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I trust Winterbottom and I trust Will Ferrell, but it's... Well, Ferrell's done a couple of dramas, but, you know... That's a, this, that's a bigger stretch than he's ever done before. Yeah, that's because... That's a real stretch. It sounds like it could be a drama, but it has outlandish notes well, to it. The thing is, Russ Meyer is a very particular personality. I have had the, I don't want to call it the pleasure, I've had the distinction of having a conversation on the phone with Russ, and uh, it's when we were trying to convince him to be part of Schlock. We were unsuccessful because Russ was, you know, determined that he was going to make a documentary about himself, and he didn't want to compete with himself. He never did. You know, he wound up, his health took a a turn for the worse, and, and that was very sad, but... You know, I talked to him. Ray talked to him. We tried. We did our best. But he, um, he's just, he was just a really flamboyant, into-himself, gravelly personality. And he was very prickly. Uh, you, you know, he said, <laughs> what did he say to me? He said, um, yeah, Sam Arkoff wanted me to make movies for him once. And I said, F you. <laughs> this was this was this. He's telling me that he's telling me these things on the phone. So I, I don't know. How, you know, Will Ferrell doing an impersonation of Russ Meyer becomes camp. But if Will Ferrell can kind of move past the Ferrellness, the SNLness, and uh, and get inside who who Russ Meyer really was, the best thing I heard about Russ Meyer was was a quote that FX Feeney quoted in uh, in Schlock, where he said he said that apparently I forget who it was, but somebody was at a party with Russ Meyer, and Russ said, you know. If I hadn't been so into big tits, I could have been Orson Welles. <laughs> and he's kind of right in a way. If you, I if, guess, but if you look at Orson Welles' career, you mean career as a director? I mean, how many, meaning how many people? Meaning people would have taken him seriously as an artist, as a filmmaker. All right. If it weren't for the fact that his films are filled with women who are just enormously endowed, and and if you look at films like Mud Honey in particular, they, they're not. They're not exploitation films. They're not crap movies. They're not like low budget, you know. Che- they're not. They're not, uh, you know, Jess Franco movies, right? They're not uh, cheese cheese ball low. But there, it's they, there's real craftsmanship to it. There's real storytelling, and uh, you know, he just he, he's he's a fascinating figure. But it's the same thing with someone like Roger Corman or even Monty Hellman, where you're like, it's very true. They're absolutely you, you pigeonhole them into a certain thing, but that doesn't mean that they're not craftsmen in their own right. True. True. What's anyway. also true is that we're not talking about DVDs yeah. or Blu-rays. Go on. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. This is a uh, Iranian... Don't get it. Don't get it. Really? I just don't get it. Well, I will say this. I don't know how much... Th- once you get by the style, which is just gorgeous. I mean, it's a graphic novel come to life. And the Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, they really knocked it out of the park. Uh, it includes a collectible graphic novel with an essay. Um you know, once you once you get away from the visuals, I don't know how much there is there, but uh, Anna Lily Amirpour yeah. is a it's just a very promising young stylist, just fantastic. It's like no movie you've ever seen. Uh, it had moments that were very haunting. That scene where the guy and the girl are together and they're playing the record, 
in her bedroom. It, it's and that's some pretty amazing stuff. It, it is. You know, I mean, I, I shouldn't be really totally down on it. It's got a lot of really impressive stuff in it. As a resume film, I think it's interesting. The style, the concept. I'm really tired of anything to do with vampires. I got to be honest, and I got a, we got another one coming up here. You know, more more gay vampires, which I'll comment on momentarily. But uh, I would not watch this because you're afraid of vampire films. If you want to see something I, very visual, you know, but, you, here's what I'll say. Imagine, imagine the Sin City films. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's black and white, very you. stylish, not quite noir lighting, but just very cool yeah. black and white light. It's just it's it's subversive and it's smart and it's yeah. visually ambitious. And I just thought it was terrific. A girl walks home alone at night. I I concur. It's it is you it is it is interesting. Concur. However, however, I still feel it's more of a resume piece. It's easy to admire from a technical standpoint, uh, but I I'm more interested to see what she does next. Uh, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to see. I want to see you know where this goes. This is this is a film that was designed you know to be to catch your attention, not necessarily to be a landmark film. So, in in one sense, it works. In another, I don't think it works quite so well. But I you know look, I respect it. I just don't particularly care for it. Does that make sense? No. Okay. Like most things you say, no sense. All right. Um, Mommy won the jury prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Uh, and I, uh, you know, it was it was praised more at the time than it was when it finally got released. Uh, Xavier Dolan, who, uh, who directed it and wrote it, is a very talented stylist. And it's, uh, it's an interesting concept. I think I agree probably more with the – I think everybody kind of loved him so much – Based on his previous work, that they just went bananas at can. I, I I'm not so sure that it actually holds up uh, once we get outside the confines of a film festival. Uh, but it's uh, it's basically about a woman who is you know she's a single mom, she's lost her husband, and she's trying to deal with a teenage son who has ADHD. And uh, it, um, it that's it. There's really not a lot else to it. It's well done for what it is, but it still feels like a like a kind of like a television movie that's been given this really. Uh, glossy French European art house feel and edge, and it's fine. Uh, good performances: Andorval, Antoine Olivier Pilon, and Suzanne Clément. Uh, but it's uh, you know it's not gonna it's not gonna sort of and it's not gonna stand the test of time, I don't think. But the film is Mommy. It is not on Blu-ray. It is only on DVD from Lionsgate. Uh, wait, there's a, a must rent called uh, Silence of the Sea, right? Le Silence de la Mer. That's correct. Jean-Pierre Melville. And I'm a huge Jean-Pierre Melville fan. Uh, Le Cirque Rouge, Le Samurai, right? Yeah. Pablo Flambert. Love him. He's awesome. This is his first feature film. And it is from uh, 1949. And it's just great. You can just... Already you can tell that Melville is becoming this brilliant visualist. It's all about... It takes place in Nazi-occupied France. There's this German. There's this Nazi who was billeted in this uh, home middle-class home with this middle-aged man and his grown uh, he's i think he's, he's he's the niece and because this german nazi is in their home they greet him with silence and they don't talk to this guy because he's a nazi in their home and he's he has a it's wartime and it's occupied france and so he's going to sit there and keep himself safe in the home of this middle-aged guy and his niece so they just uh they just greet him with silence and it's it's all about like these like these little glances and looks that are just every little look is means so much for from each of these people and it's just no one really remembers this film but it's so good and uh, i got to tell you if you're if you're a huge fan of uh, french cinema if you're a huge fan of melville which you should be i doubt you've seen uh, silence of the of the sea but it is really really good and of course uh once again uh criterion knocks out of the park 
They have a, the short, a short called The 24 Hours in the Life of a Clown, um, which is Melville's first film. That was the film he did right before this. And uh, a bunch of other um, uh, extras, including a 45-minute uh, documentary on the making of this film, which was great because it really you really get to see him at work. You get to see what he was thinking that early in his career. So um, Le Silence de la Mer, I cannot recommend highly enough. It's great. It's a good film. I agree. Yep. Uh, we've got some uh, gay titles really quickly. Get through these uh, for uh, those of our listeners who uh, who want and are interested in this particular uh, field. Um, some of them cross over, some of them don't. Drink Me is another one of those gay vampire movies that I just, I don't know why this is a thing. Uh, it's a couple of guys and uh, one of them loses his job and they take on a, a you know another guy to uh, help pay the rent and he turns out to be a vampire. I, you know... Go figure. I don't. I really don't understand that whole that whole routine. Uh, Land of Storms is a uh, is a Hungarian uh, German co production, uh, primarily Hungarian, and it's in Hungarian and German uh, about a couple of guys who uh, are a couple of you know soccer players, and uh, it moves you know moves through their relationship into a love triangle. Really, only noteworthy because it's a European setting, German and Hungarian setting. Gay films don't exactly have a, a strong root in Hungary, for example. Uh, from Wolf is The Circle by Stefan Haupt, as long as we are uh, in the in the European uh, end of things. And uh, this is a little more uh, this is a little more kind of classic and stylish. It's uh, it's got a kind of a documentary edge to it, and uh, it's a it's a bit higher level than the uh, than the usual uh, uh, you know gay film festival quality. So I you know The Circle is probably worth watching. Uh, a real crossover film that's really interesting is uh, Boy Meets Girl. And that's because it's from Eric Schaefer, who somehow overcame uh, the curse of being considered this really pretentious wannabe Woody Allen for a long time. Uh, And Eric Schaefer has actually turned into kind of an indie auteur. And he's never had his breakout film, but he keeps making movies, and they keep being consistently interesting and taking interesting new twists. And uh, this is particularly interesting, coming on the heels, as it does, of the the, uh, Bruce Jenner interview. And uh, I will leave it at that um, because it's got – it, it, would, it would give too much away. So Boy Meets Girl, based on what I just said, you fill in the blanks. Uh, but it's not – it doesn't mean to be uh, overly edgy. It's not trying to shock. It's not trying to make fun. It kind, of, it kind of hits a very, very interesting narrative path. So with that, I would say if you're an Eric Schaefer fan, uh, which I have been and I have not been at times, like – the uh, the first film that he made with uh, uh, that he co-directed, My Life's in Turnaround. Did you ever see that? Yes, long time ago. Stupid film, but intermittently funny. Sure. Uh, so you, you saw some promise there. Yeah, you saw some promise. And then lastly, on the gay front, Hustler White, a uh, film by uh, Bruce LaBruce and Rick Castro, who I guess are both uh, fixtures in. That's the, not his real name. I know. Bruce they're they're well. I know they're both kind of fixtures in the uh, in the gay film festival and the gay scene. So anyway. Uh, Rick Castro is, you know, photographer. Bruce Bruce is the is the is a filmmaker. Uh, anyway, this is uh, this uh, is a kind of a period thing, somewhat period. I hate to think of the '90s as period, but uh, 
anyway, basically deals with the uh, the hustling scene in Santa Monica in the 1990s. Uh, which, frankly, if you know you were here in L.A. in the 1990s and you drove through a certain section of Santa Monica Boulevard, you could not help but be exposed to it. There was like a, in West Hollywood, right? In West Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, there's a, sure. there's a well, we, well, there there was that classic porn theater that's not there anymore. It's, it's the Tomcat. It, yeah, well, the Tomcat. We, I mean, it's there, but it's it not used what to it was. be. It used to be a Pussycat theater, and uh, we actually shot a lot of the old fronts of the old Pussycat theaters when we were doing schlock. Because that was part of the exploitation film's late phase, you know, they, and they all have been turned into other things now. Uh, there are no more left in L.A., but there are facades for some of them. That's one of them. And uh, I think that's one of the only two that's actually still a theater of any kind. But yeah, in, any sure. case, in any case, the, the thing that's interesting about that area is that's the only place where you will find, you will see, like, gay adult bookstores and porn theaters mixed in with Russian butchers and bakers and little and candlestick old, makers and little old Russian ladies walking, you know, and and Russian mobsters like sharing the sidewalk with drag queens. It's the strangest. It's a very strange place where where different, completely opposing worlds meet. Uh, you know, it's 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 the it's Russia and it's that, and it's a very strange thing. So now, anyway, are are you closer to the Russian community or the gay community? Um, I don't know where that's going. You don't have to answer that. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I, I was looking up. for I was looking for a joke, but I, I couldn't come up with one. Oh, it's a joke, all right. Yeah, that's the the, the, the better joke is the uh, is the one from Forty Eight Hours when uh, Eddie Murphy goes into the bar and says, uh, "What do you got?" And he goes, "How about a black Russian?" Uh, it's a good. You know, joke. Why is there no? It's a good no, joke. Yeah, but why is there no Blu-ray for uh, Forty Eight Hours? I know. How can I there not it. be a Blu-ray? By the way, speaking of Eddie Murphy, this has nothing to do with Eddie Murphy. Uh, pre-order now. One of my favorite. Uh, horror films uh, of my very very early years, Wolfen. Oh, Wolfen, my gosh, I know, right? Is uh, can be pre-ordered. Wolfen's on its way. Yep, sure. Albert is. Finney. All right, Mark. Let's talk about new movies. New movies. New movies. Let's get into it. No idea what you're talking about. New movies. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Cake. What an interesting thing this this turned out to be. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, Cake, Jennifer Aniston's trying to forge a career as a real actress again, right? Don't don't associate me with things or romantic comedies or whatever. I want to be, a, you know, considered well, then a real. Stop act- doing crap, right? So that's why she made Cake. Cake's a real movie. Cake's a real performance. Uh, you know, about a woman who's suffering, who's been through some kind of a horrible, disfiguring accident, and she's going through all kinds of, you know, chronic pain therapy, and she's on medication. And it is, it is. You you don't know what happened to her, right? You you fill in the blanks of what her life was and her, you know, her her previous marriage, and you're sort of trying to just through. And she has this assistant, and you're so you're piecing all of this together. Turns right? out, it turns out what it is herpes. Exactly. It it, it uh, hangnail. Anyway, so you're it, basically what this is about is you're you're piecing this together, and and much of it is through. Um, much of it is through the uh, the eyes. Well, it's through her eyes, but a lot of a lot of your emotional connection is through uh, the Latina woman who is basically her 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 permanent assistant, who's her driver and drives her around, takes care of her, and suffers endless abuse. And uh, but the there's a woman who in her support group who winds up committing suicide, and that precipitates an investigation. And through her investigation of this woman's suicide, her backstory is revealed. And it's a it's a strong performance. The movie's not perfect, but it's really well put together. And uh, the uh, you know in some ways maybe more of a television movie. What what I find interesting is this thing got no Oscar nominations, but it got you know a SAG nomination. And it did well with the guilds, but they didn't push it at all with the critics groups. And they didn't push it at all with the Academy, which I find so strange because it, it could easily have 
have gotten a, a, yeah. a few nominations. Well, she she was considered number six or seven in terms of Best Actress Perhaps, nominations. But, if but you know what? Harder. You know what? Look, here's the thing. First of all, I don't think Jennifer Aniston should get an Oscar nomination for showing up. No, she, she doesn't. She's really show, good in this. She finally, but she finally decided to show up. She did. And she finally decided to give a performance and do the work. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if she does that another two, three times, then maybe they'll, they'll give her something. Probably true. Anyway, this is on Blu-ray with uh, Ultraviolet. And uh, I do recommend this. Uh, Wait, one of the most uh, highly acclaimed films of last year was a horror film. Yes, it was. It's called the... A little, uh, little Australian horror film. It's called The uh, Babadook. And, uh, you know, I saw this... You know, I nominated Mr. Babadook for, uh, for New Generation, and no one took me seriously. <laughs> he might have shown up. Would have been a real just killer of an evening if he had shown up. Lights go out. Babadook. You know, I have to say that I didn't. I was not destroyed by this film like other. It didn't. It didn't scare the hell out of you. <laughs> it really didn't. No. It, it, I. Well, what I liked about this film is that it's a female director, a female yeah. star, a female angle. I think that's great. And I a low budget. And a low budget. They and, got a lot out of a low you, budget. And mind you, a low budget that they don't use to make a found footage movie. M Night Shyamalan just made a found footage I movie. Know. Come on. That's terrible. Grow up. That's terrible. Are you kidding me? But you know the fact that it was directed by this uh, woman Jennifer Kent, who also wrote it. You get a sense of what a male director would have included that a female director True. did not include. Yes. However, and all of that said, that doesn't make this a scary movie. No. It's it's it, it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. Yes. If this was directed by John Smith, yeah, you'd be like, "Us, oh, pretty good." Yeah. But because it's directed by a woman, you were inflating it a little bit. I'm trying not to be politically correct. I, I'm well, just saying no, that. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I mean, I, we, we normally associate – when it comes to horror films, we usually assume that women are emotionally more connected and, and uh, less psychotic and more well-balanced than men. And the reason that horror films directed by men are usually tend to be scarier is because men are just a bunch of sick bastards who infect their movies with all of their anxieties and their fears and their peccadilloes and what have you. And that women are just too well adjusted to actually freak us out. That's that's where you're going, right? Did I read that correctly? Well, I, I you said it better than I. Thank you. Well, no, and, and I can and I concur with that. Uh, which is which is why, you know, women don't generally gravitate to these kinds of films as directors. But that being said, um, what I think is interesting about this is not that it is scary. It's not that scary, but it's creepy. And there's a difference between creepy and scary. And most hor- American horror films lately are just, they mean to be scary, but they're just gross and gory. And they're not creepy. I, re- I prefer creepy to scary. And the, what's great about this is that she invents a mythology just for this film. The, the, the book and the art design. And like Jumanji. It's great. It's fantastic. It's, it's the Jumanji of horror It's films. really good. So Jennifer Kent, you are terrific. And this also includes her short film, Monster, uh, which, is, which is also terrific. Uh, Jennifer Kent is a big deal. And uh, don't even think, you know, in scary films or horror films. She's a big deal. She's, she's very talented. It's a tight script. It's well-directed. And uh, the performances are fantastic. Uh, and it's, it's definitely going uh, to set her up for some stuff. So... Hopefully she doesn't get you know called to do a Marvel movie. That seems to be the the the, the minefield where everybody gets sent to die after they've done some kind of a great. She, independent she, film, she, she can direct Wonder Woman. No, that's, somebody has to. Yeah, well, no, that's that's going to be uh, what's her name who did Monster. She, oh yeah, she's, she's she, doing. Uh, that's she, right. Yeah, she's doing it. Kimberly Pierce. 
But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, the Bob Duck. It's nice packaging too. It's uh, nice. you know, it's, it's I mean, it's a regular Blu-ray case, but it comes in this. Uh, IFC spent a little bit of money for a change and put it into this uh, this kind of cool dark burgundy uh, slipcover. It's really really groovy. Oh uh, wait, here's the thing with Taken Three. It's, uh, it's the most unnecessary movie ever made. Better than the second one. So unnecessary. Not as good as the first one. Let's call it a day. And just assume that uh, whatever you know what I'm. Look, Liam Neeson. We all know that he's 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 in becoming an action hero. In my opinion, he's working out his anxiety yes. about the fact that he couldn't save his wife. Right, his, yeah. his wife tragically sure. died in a skiing accident. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that he feels if he does these movies where he like saves his daughter and saves his wife, he is yep. working out the anxiety of the fact that he couldn't save her. Yep, that's what I think. I hear you. So now that he's done three Taken films and all those other films nonstop and blah blah, just enough already. Yep, I'm sure there's a, a period piece you could be doing now with a prestige director. Uh, enough of that. So Taken 3 is uh, takes place in L.A., which goes to show you, at least budgetarily, they've given up. Mm-hmm. Not shooting in Paris, not no. shooting in some far-off land. Turkey, Turkey Shoot, was nope. the last one. Shooting in L.A., don't care, don't care anymore. Yeah. Let's shoot in L.A., crank it out in 30 days, <laughs> get it over with, You know, shoot some things, no, let's nobody, go home. We don't have to move anybody no, anywhere. Yeah. We do not. So let's, let's just figure that Taken 3 is the end. And let's hope it's the end. It needs to be. Yes. It really enough does. Do, give, give him something else to do. Doesn't have to. I mean, Taken as a Liam Neeson as a brand is now just as valuable as Taken as a brand, right? He doesn't need to be in a movie called Taken four, five, six in order for people to go, "Oh, it's cool, it's Liam Neeson." Like people want to see him just kick butt now, and you could put that in just about any movie, and I think it'll still work. Why so, is so he? Um, why was Taken Two not called Taken Two Electric Boogaloo? Uh, you know, they considered it. And yeah, they did, but they, they figured it might conf- be, be a little confusing with the, uh, the half dozen other movies that had Electric Boogaloo in the title. Okay, Selma. Boy, was there any movie m- less? Uh, how would I phrase this? Is there any movie that was more talked about for not getting the honors that people felt it deserved last year? Yeah, that really annoyed me. You know what? It, it really... It almost, I think, worked against the film getting its awards. And Selma's a terrific film. And by the it way, it's, 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 it's terrific for what it doesn't do, just as much as for what it does do. I agree. But that said, I, I, I was really annoyed that be, because because it didn't get all the awards that everyone thought, because it's Marlon well, thinking somehow everybody's racist and everybody... Stop it. And I think there was I think there was also a feeling that that because 12 Years a Slave had won the year, the year before, that this was intentionally being overlooked because, quote-unquote, well, we did the black thing last year. Do we have to do this every year? Like, some people really felt that there was a little bit of residual backlash because it came so close on the heels of another movie that had American history and civil rights implications. I, I don't know if any of that's true. I don't think it is. It was a very competitive year. I do know this. Had they pushed Selma harder with the Academy... Or, or had they pushed they pushed it with the but had they pushed it harder with the guilds they would have done better. It didn't do well with the guilds because they didn't Paramount kind of blew it with their guild strategy. They didn't send copies. They didn't send screeners to anybody with the guilds. So it got no love from SAG. It got no love from the producers. No love from the directors. So it it, it had no heat on it uh, other than what might have been given it by critics groups. And it was a hugely competitive year. I mean, when you have something, when, I mean, some of the films that the critics loved got no love when it came to other awards, especially the Oscars. So, um, most violent year being case in point, you know that got that was right out of the gates. National Board of Review, best picture, and then it bonked, got nothing else. So Selma wound up getting two Oscar nominations, one for best picture and the other for song, and it wound up winning song. So you know there is, I mean, clearly it was on people's short list. It just wasn't on the short five list. That said, 
Uh, I love this movie. I think this is an outstanding film. Uh, it it has a very difficult balancing act to to, to manage um, because it's dealing with historical figures who are so fresh in our memory, and it's dealing with a subject that is again very much in the news. And it's very hard to make that story work dramatically without it appearing to be a lecture, a big, grand, hit-you-over-the-head polemic. And I give Ava DuVernay all the credit. Ava DuVernay, who, who directed it, used to be a publicist, uh, used to have her own agency, the DuVernay Agency. Twenty years ago, a lot of us worked with her on a regular basis, and she was outstanding as a publicist. And uh, I, I think she has a huge career ahead of her now as a director. Uh, David Oyelowo pulled her onto this project when... Uh, uh, what's his face? Well, Lee Daniels. Lee Daniels fell out, and all I can say is, thank God. Can you almighty. imagine? Can you if, imagine? The, the, oh the, my gosh! Can you imagine the free for all? This movie oh would have been. Oh my if, gosh! Can, there, there is no two more dichotomous names it, in terms of directing no, style than because, Lee Daniels and Ava DuVernay. Because Ava DuVernay is is subtle, and and you know, there's there's like a quiet power to the, to what she does. Everything is sort of everything is more powerful because it's understated. With Lee Daniels, everybody is just cranked up to 11 and they are just uh, on this high pitch and you know he really belongs on TV Let, do Empire just stay there please that's your thing man stick with that and just keep keep rocking it with that and getting those high ratings and, and uh, don't don't make any more movies please but Ava does a fantastic job here it's just it's so well directed and there are, there are sections of this that are that will just tear your heart out and he's great I David love Oyelowo, him he's so good because you know what he's not trying to do impersonations of Martin Luther King He's he's actually trying to sort of get inside the essence and the soul of the man, his vulnerabilities, his insecurities. And let's remember, this is called Selma. It's not about Martin Luther King. It's about the people. And as I've pointed out many times, this, this movie asks a very simple question. It is not an overly political film. It, it, clearly, it has a certain political point of view. But what it really asks is it asks a much bigger question. Does the movement make the man or does the man make the movement? And it doesn't necessarily answer that question. It, it leaves it up to you. But I think it's a really interesting question, and it does it uh, extremely well. Great casting in here, too, by the way. Uh, you know, all the British actors. David Oyelowo is British. And the, the woman who played his wife? Uh, yes, Fred she's Scott. great. She's great. Beautiful. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tim Roth plays uh, 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 Louisiana governor. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Melly Mel Steve? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Why George can't... Wallace. George Wallace, thank you. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, you have Tom uh, Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson playing uh, LBJ. LBJ, fantastic! Do it does a really great job. Those scenes between Martin Luther King and LBJ are just to die They're for. They're great. They're great. This so movie's well terrific. It's absolutely terrific. Lots I, of lots of extras on here. Uh, commentary with Ava DuVernay and uh, David Oyelowo that is superb. Absolutely superb. If you if you aren't impressed by her as a director just from watching the film, you will be impressed after hearing the incredibly eloquent uh, way in which she discusses the film on the commentary. First straight all across the board yep i agree but then again if it didn't get nominated for what you wanted to get nominated for too bad them's yeah. the breaks with all the movies i love and wade loves and everybody loves sometimes you can't get nominated for everything and paddington paddington bear collector's edition uh we've talked about before the uh three disc set from mill creek uh, with uh, this the wonderful stop-motion Paddington Bear uh, classic animation is just, just first-rate. It's so much fun, but I don't think it's as fun as the feature film Paddington, uh, which is now out from Anchor Bay. Weinstein blew a chance with this. Weinstein uh, released this in November in the U.K. and did killer numbers, 
could have released this for the holidays. There would have been no other family films other than Into the Woods for them to compete against in December. And they instead decided to release it in January. And I think they blew it. They released a little bit of a qualifying run, so it's technically a 2014 film. But uh, it should have been for, the, for, for Christmas. They should have just thrown it all out there. This is such a wonderful movie. Paul King, who directed this, has kind of come out of nowhere and uh, is now suddenly everybody's hot new director. The story of Paddington Bear told with a, a CGI bear that is just really well done. But, um, you know, he, he comes to uh, – he, he, he's lost his family and he comes looking to reconnect with the, uh, with the explorer who, uh, who sort of taught his family and all the other bears how to be sophisticated British bears in the jungle. I remember when you, when you left the screening, yes. you called me and said – oh, no, maybe you emailed me. It, and you said, oh, my God, this is the greatest so, film I've ever seen in my life. It's the life. greatest family film I've seen in 20 years. It really is. It's like the best family film. It's so wonderful. Uh, Sally Hawkins and Hugh Bonneville of uh, – Hugh Bonneville, of course, of uh, Downton Abbey are the parents of the family that take him in. And they are so wonderful. And they're just delightful. Peter Capaldi, you know, who's the new Doctor Who, is their, is their very suspicious neighbor who winds up getting sucked in. By Nicole Kidman's uh, villainous uh, character, who I will not uh, say anything else about. But it's a great plot. It's a great story. The direction is so smart. The script is so smart. You will be shocked that a family film uh, was given this much effort to really work. I have have your actual email. Go ahead. Hit me. This is the actual. I looked it up. Uh, This is the actual email that Wade sent me on Tuesday, December 9, 2014. Subject line, Paddington Advanced Screening. All caps, see this with seven exclamation points. And I'm not kidding. If this were a 2014 release, it would make my top ten. And it, and it actually was an actual wound up being, major email to me. It wound up being considered a 2014 release because they, they had a, a qualification run. So it did make my top ten, I believe. You're out of your mind. Yep. There you go. All right. Let's, uh, let's haul butt a little bit through the, uh, the remainder of these. Wait. We have uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest in her advice. This movie, you know what? This is a type of film where you... Stoner noir. It's it, bo- it bored me to tears. You know, this does not seem like a film that Wade uh, would no. like. It is a film, however, I uh, conditionally liked. It's like the Maltese Falcon in which everybody has... It's like the Maltese Falcon set in the 70s and uh, Sam Spade... No, what it is is... Sam Spade is stoned out of his mind and does everything at no. half speed. No, this is a spiritual sequel to The Long Goodbye. Because yeah, it's confusing, it takes place in L.A., and this is a movie where either you get into its groove or you don't. And if you don't get into its, into its groove, it's just it's I never it's did. groovy, and it's just a stoner romp that I found that, really strange. It, it's it's a movie made up of individual moments that do not even remotely add up to an entire film. But the thing is that Paul Thomas Anderson is always so in control of what he wants to do. It's not like he doesn't know that. Oh, I know he knows that. And and, and the and the book apparently, I guess if you're a fan of the book, it's uh, it's spot on. But I. I'm not a fan of the book. Josh Brolin is so funny. Yeah, it just didn't work for me. I thought this thing was great. I, you know, it's really well shot. Again, it's not, it's not brilliantly, it's not brilliant, vibrant color shot. Yeah. Again, this is shot through just a haze of pot smoke, and it, lo- it looks beautiful on Blu-ray, Blu-ray, and DVD, and ultraviolet. And uh, it's, uh, you know, not exactly bloated with extras, but uh, it'll do. That'll do, pig. That'll do. You know, Maps to the Stars, man. This just this just rocks. I uh, I have not loved a Cronenberg film this lo- this much in a long time. Uh, Julianne Moore could very easily. I mean, this this could have gotten her an Oscar if the other performance didn't in Still Alice. Uh, this is just, this just man. This is a mean, acerbic, angry, bitter, vicious, 
hateful anti-Hollywood movie. Uh, this makes uh, the player look like uh, you know, like a like a Valentine to Hollywood. It really you know, does. Sometimes I find some of these anti Hollywood films a little. Oh they're actually kind of self congratulatory. This is in no way self congratulatory. This is so caustic; it's unbelievable. Uh, essentially, there are a variety of characters whose whose fates are all intertwined, and you don't sort of figure that out until midway through the movie. But uh, Julianne Moore is an aging actress who desperately wants to nail a part land apart that was made famous by her mom and she's sort of living in her mom's shadow but she is the quintessential self-absorbed insecure uh goofy new agey hollywood actress john kuzak is kind of this new agey guru-y guy who um was their their son was a uh was a child star and there's a whole bunch of baggage in that and then Mia Wachikowska is this strange woman who's a little bit scarred, and we're not quite sure how she plugs into all this. Uh, in any case, uh, it really, man, this thing once it gets going, I I was sitting I was sitting next to um, Linda Wheat, our our Lafka colleague uh, of People Magazine, when I saw this is screening. <laughs> and there's a point in this movie. There's a point in this movie where something so horrible happens, and the way people react to it is so psychotic and offensive and incomprehensible and yet so typically Hollywood that it, that it just it, it makes you sick to your stomach. It makes you almost hate everything that is the entertainment business. You almost think it's this is this whole town should just be burned down because people are like this. And I won't tell you, but it's a moment that is just it violates every moral tenet that every normal human being has. But it's so Hollywood. And in that moment, that moment, Linda just gasped. She gasped audibly and grabbed my arm, and she looked at me with this just abject horror in her face. And I just started laughing. Because I, how do you how do you even cope with something like that? Um, I recommend this. I just can't recommend this higher high, uh, highly enough. If it'll make you want to do anything other than be in this business, it really. It's just. And Robert Pattinson is in it, of course. He's a he plays this chauffeur who wants to be a writer. It's a, don't they all? Yeah. Wade, you're an angry man. I am an angry man. You know what makes me angry, Wade? What makes you angry? Kevin Hart. Why? Because I don't Why? get it. I don't get it. Not on board. Uh, Everybody loves Kevin Hart except me. Uh, I like Kevin Hart, but I think he's. I think he's got to. He's got to do something dramatic. He's got to show. He's Not yet. He's, he's got. You know, he's too busy on social media. You know, making jokes and doing these horrible movies like The Wedding Ringer and just. Yeah. I mean, he was. I guess he was funny when he did the um, Justin Bieber roast. But uh, I just not feeling this guy, and the wedding ringer is, is is the sort of disposable, you know, comedy that guys like this always seem to make when they're stand ups and they're first starting out and first getting their movies, and uh, you know, it's just got to stop. You know what? Just just hone your craft. You know, do more do more well, clever you. comedy, and just I just feel like this guy. I don't get it. And the movie's I, not good anyway. Josh Gad's in it, and Josh Gad, a guy who like. You know, Monday he was nobody, and Tuesday he's everywhere. I don't, I know. I don't even know who Josh Gad is. <laughs> he was. You know, he's he's on that FX show now. He's a Broadway guy. He's a Broadway guy, and and he's you know, he's, he's like if you can't afford um, Jonah Hill, you hire Josh Gad. <laughs> I'm sure Josh Gad knows that. <laughs> That's how you. doesn't make him very happy. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes. So there's the wedding ringer. There's your there there's your uh, there's your cheap, unsatisfying Saturday night rental. Yeah, the wedding ringer. Yeah. Now, I don't know what Jennifer Lopez is thinking with the boy next door because, you know what, she, it's, here's the thing. Jennifer Lopez, she's a quadrillionaire. She's on uh, you know, American Idol, and she does albums. and she does, So she doesn't need to do just 
just B-movie, pulpy crap like The Boy Next Door. I don't know what she's thinking. You know, maybe she yeah. thinks because I'm in my 40s now, the fact that I can bring in bring him in in my 40s doing a role like this makes pretty, me feel sexy. I have no idea. Pretty generic thriller. I mean, it's Rob Cohen. It's totally generic. I have no idea how they looped her into this, unless this is done by maybe one of her companies or something or... It's just really sad, really sad that she would do this. I mean, not that Jennifer Lopez is going to go out and win an Oscar any day or do some Merchant Ivory film, but uh, there's got to be better material that attracts her more than The Boy Next Door because I just think it's a waste, total waste. All right, I got a bunch of uh, kind of mid-level uh, indies here that I'm just going to roll through fairly quickly. Uh, the first one is Aftermath, One Man's Overreaction. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall uh, has tried to forge really kind of an interesting career. He's showing up in all kinds of stuff now, and you just don't even, unless you know it's Anthony Michael Hall, you probably don't even realize that, that this is the guy from all those John Hughes movies in the 80s. Um, he's, a, he's a decent actor, and he's really kind of trying to stretch it, and uh, this, is a, this is an okay film. Uh, it's, uh, it's about a guy who's a contractor, and uh, well, he's a developer, but he's, uh, he, he, has a, he has a clash with a subcontractor played by Chris Penn, which tells you how long ago this was made, because Chris is long, long since no longer with us. And um, things get out of control. They go completely out of hand. And uh, it's, it, it's a little bit contrived, a little bit forced as to how this all kind of transpires. Get some good supporting performances. Tony Danza and Frank Whaley show up in, in interesting supporting parts. I, I'm very forgiving of this because I think uh, Anthony Michael Hall is a good actor and he's really trying to do some interesting things. And it was nice to see Chris in the thing again. For those who don't know, I, uh, you know, I, went to, I, I grew up with Chris. Um, knew him from the time we were we were 12 years old, and it uh, made me very very sad that he uh, he he passed away so so young. Uh, was never kind to his body, but uh, Chris never really got the props that he, he deserved as an actor. You know, he won an award at the Venice Film Festival once for uh, for that Abel Ferrara film, and uh, everybody just always kind of uh, stuck him in the in the shadow of his brother, which was never quite fair. So it's it's nice to still see a few posthumous performances coming through that uh, show what he can do and and Chris was uh, Chris does a good job here so uh, guarded recommendation for Aftermath uh, we also have the completely unnecessary Marine 4 moving target I just don't know what justifies continuing to make more of these things they are all totally generic uh, it doesn't matter who's in them anymore this has uh, Mike the Miz Mizanin and Summer Ray. I don't even know who these people are. I assume they have some connection to uh, WWE. Regardless, this thing is just a lot of pyrotechnics and, uh, and AFM sexiness, and it's kind of pointless. Uh, little Accidents had a little bit of attention uh, briefly because it has some good performances in it from uh, Chloe Savigny, Boyd Holbrook, and most particularly Elizabeth Banks who continues to do interesting work, uh, albeit uneven work. Written and directed by uh, Sarah Colangelo, who, uh, who does a good job with the actors, has a certain visual style. The, uh, the whole missing kid uh, storyline, the whole kind of small town thing, feels a little bit familiar. Um, but I think everybody in it, you can forgive them. It's an independent film. They're doing their best. And uh, The Walking Deceased. Uh, not really as funny as it should be. Uh, we're we're into uh, you know Zucker Brothers spoof territory here, trying to sort of spoof the the whole zombie thing now, which I think has already been spoofed to death. And uh, there's nothing here that hasn't already been done better by somebody else. It's not bad. It's just again really worn and familiar. Uh, Teeth and Blood, a uh, another vampire movie. 
the 9,000th one that we've had in the last year and a half. Uh, this one deals specifically with, uh, you know, vampires going after blood from the donated blood bank. Uh, and I, you know, I just, I don't know. It, 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 there's just nothing new in that, in that whole genre. It just all feels derivative. And then lastly, on this little stack, uh, Val Kilmer, desperately trying to resurrect his career, uh, plays Mark Twain in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. A, a completely unrelated thing that has nothing to do with anything that Twain ever wrote uh, other than using the two characters and kind of putting them into a, a sort of uh, strange Indiana Jones-ish adventure. Uh, I, I don't really get it. I don't know why this movie exists. But that being said, uh, watching Val Kilmer play Mark Twain is kind of a camp classic. There's there's a lot of entertainment value in that, and uh, I'm not. It's not necessarily intentional. Wade uh, Scott Glenn is one of our favorite uh, longtime character actors. Ooh, he, have you have you watched Daredevil yet? No. On on Netflix, you love that show. I, I, it, I, I, it hooked me, man. It really did. Really, it's, it's good? good. Yeah, it's good. Scott Glenn shows up in it at a certain point. He plays Stick. Did you ever read the comics? Yes. I do remember there was a stick. I, I don't know who he was sticks or what he the, Stick's the mystical kind of, you know, martial arts wise dude who taught Daredevil all he knows. Wow. Yeah. He's also blind. Stick. But is he deaf? So anyway, Scott Glenn plays Stick, which is great casting. Well, he's neither uh, blind nor deaf. And the barber. Now, we like the barber because it gives uh, Scott Glenn uh, front and center placement in a film, which I know is like completely and totally unique because he's always the... Uh, He's one of the great uh, character actors. Um, the movie is uh, not that great. He plays a barber who uh, years ago uh, was uh, got off on a murder charge for insufficient evidence. And now the son of the detective who unsuccessfully uh, uh, tried to get him thrown in jail has returned. And what does he find, Wade? He finds Scott Glenn as the barber. No! <laughs> anyway, no! this is... Anyway, this thing is very un- it's it's ambitious, but it's very uneven. It's it, it, you know it reminds you a little bit of like uh, of other films, like you know, of like urban serial killer on the loose kind of thing, where he's like hiding in plain sight. But um, I just think that this thing is just not that great. There's a lot of twists in it, and it winds up being twist after twist for no particular reason. The cat and mouse stuff has been done better in other films. Not that clever. Not really no tension to it. He doesn't really, the director really does not ratchet it up enough. So the barber's not really very good. I can see Scott Glenn being interested because, again, he gets the top line it. Um, and, of course, Stephen uh, Tobolowski's in it. And, you know, anything Stephen Tobolowski is in. I can't even look it's at him on screen good. without thinking of uh, Groundhog Day. That's right. Every single time. That's right. He's the best. Uh, the Gambler with Mark Wahlberg. This is uh, one of those films. It's kind of like, um, it's a little like The Counselor, like Killing Them Softly. It's like very sort of dark and noirish thing. Where like a, Just kind of lays there, though. Just kind of lays there. Mark Wahlberg plays a... Uh, he plays a uh, English professor who's also a high-stakes gambler, and he's got a bar from a guy from the mob. Now, this was directed by... Uh, um, this was directed by Rupert Wyatt, who did the first Planet of the Apes film and jumped off and gave it to uh, Matt Reeves through the second Planet of the Apes film. And then Rupert wound up doing this. <laughs> I don't know if that was a good choice. <laughs> I don't know if that was, I'm not sure he had a choice, actually. I wonder I'm glad about for that. Ma- I'm glad for Matt, but it's like, wow, that's... Exactly. You know, but, I mean, Wyatt's going to have a career. He's, he's, it's not he hasn't done anything since. I'm so curious what he's doing next. So this he's, is, taken, he's taken meetings, and he'll land something big. So this is one of those, you know... Saturday Night Rentals sort of things, you know, Wyatt is talented, 
I like seeing Mark Wahlberg. He's one of the most unlikely leading men in the world coming coming after, uh, you know, uh, Marky Mark and all that kind of crap. Uh, next, we have Accidental Love. This is a uh, little nothing of a film with a great cast that it does not deserve. Jessica Biel, um, Jake Gyllenhaal, Catherine Keener. So what happens is uh, Jessica Biel uh, is involved in a freak accident where there's a nail lodge in her head and she starts acting very erotic, uh, very erotic actually, and erratic. Uh, the fiancé is played by James Marsden. He calls off the engagement and then all sorts of craziness ensues. Interesting here, this uh, features Tracy Morgan. So you know this was shot at least like 18 months ago because Tracy Morgan is still recovering yeah. from his tragic accident. Um so, I don't know what to say about Accidental uh, Love. It is uh, not that great, not that funny, lacks wit. Um, people run around being frantic, but that doesn't mean it's funny. So, I would really pass on um, Accidental Love as, as much as the cast is really good. All right, we're going to do some uh, classic stuff, and then we're going to call an end to the show. Uh, I've got a bunch of uh, Kino and Olive stuff that I'm going to go through, and then I'm going to turn it over to Mark to wrap us out. Uh, the uh, Olive stuff, really good pack of uh, Olive films this week, uh, five in total, starting with Teachers with Nick Nolte and Joe Beth Williams and Judd Hirsch. Uh, Teachers from uh, 1984, good year. Not a movie that a lot of people paid an awful lot of attention to at the time, but it kind of dates pretty well. It was Arth- controversial at the time. It, it, it was, but it was sort of, I don't know, it was like, you know, it was like most Arthur Hiller films of the era. It wasn't, it wasn't gritty enough. It was a little too 70s. Uh, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't, you know, a complete misfire. It just, uh, it just didn't, it didn't sort of, you know, it was a little too commercial uh, to be edgy, and it was a little too edgy to be commercial. I think that was kind of the problem. But uh, regardless, in hindsight, I actually think it's, uh, it's a pretty good film, and uh, it's interesting to look at it just with respect to, you know, what's happened to the education system. Nick Nolte's always good. Little Man Tate is one of my favorite. Oh, films. that's great! I love this movie. Absolutely, from, from 1991, directed by Jodie Foster. Foster. Jodie Foster plays the mom of this amazing kid, this genius kid, and uh, it's just so wonderful. Uh, Adam Han Bird, who's really gone on to do nothing, is so great as her son. I just this movie just tears my heart out. Yep, it's really good. Harry Connick Jr. is wonderful. Uh, Diane Weist is wonderful. The the mother son relationship could not be better. This is just absolutely fantastic. An early producing um, success for Scott Rudin, written by Scott Frank, who of course wrote Dead Again and lots of other great films. And a bunch still, of stuff for Soderbergh. A bunch of stuff for Soderbergh. Well, still one of the great screenwriters in Hollywood. Uh, really, I just love this movie. So that is that is on Blu-ray from Olive, the uh, remake of. Lord Lord of the Flies uh, by Harry Hook, who does a decent job directing this and then went on to do absolutely nothing. Harry Hook is unheard of. This was a Castle Rock production for 20th Century Fox at the time. And uh, it, uh, it's, 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 you know what? It's not a bad film. It's not as good as the black and white classic. Uh, but uh, you know it's faithful to the book, the the Golding book, and it uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not as good as the other one. But it's got good score by Philippe Sard and great performances, including uh, Balthazar Getty, who kind of went on to do an, an awful lot of really great stuff, including you know uh, Brothers and Sisters on television and uh, Lost Highway for David Lynch. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this in particular. It just didn't get its due, so it's nice to have that on Blu-ray. Hollywood Shuffle, which put Robert Townsend on the map, 
took him away from being a uh, just another stand-up comic. And it was a big he, deal at the time. That it was movie. a huge deal, man. He put this whole movie on his credit cards. He That's maxed right. out his credit cards to make this movie, and it became this huge success. He co-wrote it, of course, with Keenan Ivory Wayans, and uh, it was photographed by Peter Deming, by the way. Peter Deming, who's done a lot of David Lynch stuff and is uh, you know a real DP. So I mean, they hired real people to do this. And shot it on film. You know, there was no digital at the time, and uh, it's uh, it it still resonates because if you're a black actor in Hollywood, uh, you still sort of face a lot of the same hurdles. So um, he really he made a message movie that was entertaining and that was sharp and smart, and uh, he put it all on his credit card, and he and he scored. His directing career has soured a little bit since, but this movie has not. So that is also on Blu-ray. And then the last one from Olive is Harry and Son, uh, Paul Newman and Robbie Benson. Uh, also with Joanne Woodward, who keeps showing up in all of Paul Newman's later films. Paul Newman directed this, which means it's a little bit saccharine and melodramatic, like most of his stuff, a little too actory and drawn out. Uh, but still, this is uh, it's a it's you know it's a decent film. Uh, one of the last films dire- uh, edited by D- the great editor Dee Dee Allen before she passed away. And then, uh, real quickly, from the Kino uh, Lorber classics line, we have on DVD only. David Lynch's Wild at Heart and Clint Eastwood in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, uh, written and directed by Michael Cimino. The reason these are on DVD only is because you get these very interesting deals now. Uh, Twilight Time recently released both of these on Blu-ray. So Twilight Time, at least for the, for the time being, has the Blu-ray license on these, but only for those 3,000 copies. So I'm inclined to think that at some point the Twilight Time license will expire. It will revert back to Kino Lorber. Uh, and uh, or rather, uh, MG, Fox and MGM will sort of reassign that license to Kino Lorber, and we'll get another Blu-ray release. Probable, not Ooh. inevitable, but I think that's interesting. And then the three Blu-ray titles from Kino Lorber: uh, Charles Bronson in The White Buffalo, uh, which is a uh, you know better than average J. Lee Thompson western from the uh, the seventies. The the genre is kind of dying in the late seventies, but you have a great score by John Barry, which is pretty cool. Uh, nice performance by Clint Walker as well, believe it or not. Uh, Lee Van Cleef and Warren Oates, two of the grittiest tough guys ever in Barquero. Uh, also a really cool gritty western from 1970, right on the edge there when the western was dying, but it still had a little bit of juice in it. Some great performing, uh, supporting performances in here. Uh, Kerwin Matthews, um, Marriott Hartley, of all people. Uh, so that one, that also has a really good score by uh, Dominic Frontier. And then lastly, one of my all-time favorite films ever made, Convoy. Uh, <laughs> you got a great big Convoy. Man, what a, great, what, a, what a fantastic song. No, it's, it's funny because I remember when I was in elementary school, this is a Sam Peckinpah film, of course. This was back when... Chris uh, Christopher, it's a big deal. Chris, this this a, movie, too, is a big deal at the time. This was a huge deal. Because the song was huge. This inspired all the, the whole trucker thing with BJ and the Bear. And, you know, I, we were so into... Everyone was so into trucking at the time. I got a CB and radio. CB, I got a CB radio, too. I did, too. I was, like, always trying to, hey, good buddy, how you doing? What's That's your right. 1020? 10-4. You're learning all the 10 codes That's and trying right. to get truckers on there I knew all the different trucks I knew white white Freightliner Peterbilt uh, you know all of my Mac I knew all the different truck uh, manufacturers I mean trucking was like it's just, this movie turned it into a cultural phenomenon actually that's not true I didn't have a CB radio a friend of mine had a CB radio and I begged him to come over his house whenever I wanted climb into his little attic and uh, for as late as I wanted late at night and yeah. just try to find people on CB yeah 
And you never found anybody except for like nah. some weird, lonely, fat, pot-bellied trucker in the middle of nowhere. Well, uh, here's here's the last thing I'm going to say about this. We, I was also a, a huge fan of this because I was I was a little kid at the time, and one of my one of my friends, part of my circle of friends at the time, his dad was the editor. And he eventually went into editing as well. But I remember it was, you know, they're from England. And uh, I, we, he was like, yeah, my dad, you just you cut this movie called Convoy. And I was like, cut? What's cut? Oh, you know, he's the editor. It's like, oh, I don't even know what the hell an editor is. But if your dad worked on a movie, that movie's cool. We're into it. Trucking, Convoy, good buddy. We're into it. It was great. Trendy. You're just a trendy bastard. Yeah. All right, right I'm, I'm wrapping it up, whether you Wrap like it, it or not. Wrap it up. All right, let's start with uh, let's start with from a whisper to a scream. This is an anthology film from uh, 1987. This stars Vincent Price. Vincent Price at this point is getting a lot older. In fact, it's a little while before he died. Um, after this, so it's an anthology film. So there's four movies, and so you, you know some are better than others. I think ultimately, unless you're a big Vincent Price fan or a big you know you know vintage horror fan, I would pass on from a whisper to a scream. Then you have. Um, a remake, rewind, double feature, interesting uh, D, uh, DVD concept here. We have both versions of The End of the Affair. We have the 1955 version with uh, Deborah Carr and uh, Van Johnson, directed by uh, Edward Dimitrik. And then we have the 1999 remake starring Ray Fiennes and Julianne Moore, directed by Neil Jordan. Uh, of the two, I would take the 1955 version. Uh, for me, Ray Fiennes was never a romantic leading man to me. I just did, never saw him like that. But you know what? I absolutely do love that. I love the remake, and I particularly love it because of the Michael Nyman score, which if you like the music from the piano and the other handful of scores that Michael Nyman has done, it's just it's a great score. He, I mean, you, know, you know Michael Nyman? I think it was Michael Nyman. He did a great score for um, Man with a Camera. The Russian film. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he did. He, he did. He, was that Nyman? Yeah. yeah. I, I, now, I'm not sure which version of Man with a Camera is on Blu-ray, if any, if any version is on Blu-ray, but I hope that when it comes out on Blu-ray, if it's not already, correct me if I'm wrong, that they give me the one with the Michael Nyman score because it's really good. Anyway, uh, The End of the Affair, both of those. Also, uh, the, our uh, penultimate Blu-ray of the week, penultimate meeting Wade, second to last. Ooh, yeah. Use the, the word correctly. You're, you're not very bright. Um, a cult comedy from 1990 is Mammy Blues, and the reason why uh, I know it's a cult comedy is because I love this movie. This movie is awesome. This is a really funky, brightly colored ki- uh, crime caper starring Fred Ward, Alec Baldwin, Jennifer Jason Lee, and of, uh, it's just really – there is nothing funnier than watching Fred Ward put his fake teeth in in this movie. I found that so funny. I just think this thing is hilarious. It's brutal and funny and it's just out there and strange and I just think this thing is a, it's a cult comedy for a reason because not everybody gets it. It's And the good thing is that the Blu-ray has new interviews with um, Alec Baldwin Jennifer Jason Lee, so you know they like it. Like, yeah. if, if they're gonna, Alec Baldwin does not have to come out this of is, a hiding to this do This movie will never become a famous classic because anytime you show this, two-thirds of the theater will be going, what the? And the other third will be laughing their butts off. And it's just, if you're, if you're that 33% of the population that, that loves this kind of comedy, this will be a classic for all time. The other two-thirds just will never get it. And now, now uh, George Armitage, who uh, also went on to direct uh, Gross Point Blank with John, one of the funniest John Cusack films, Gross Point Blank. So great. Now, you could give me this if you wanted to. Oh, no, no, no. Really? Oh, no. I love that movie. Love it. Well, you could give me this. Oh, that's no. Are you kidding me? That's what? one of Peter Yates' best films. I love this movie. I love this movie, too. Well, we're going to end on The Friends of Eddie Coyle because The Friends of Eddie Coyle oh, is just awesome. Fantastic. And we have been waiting for the scene to come out on Blu ray. It's about time, 1973. Yep. One of Peter Yates' best films. Uh, this is also one of Robert. This is Robert Mitchum. You know what? He's getting older. He's got the lines in his face. He plays this. He's like a 
truck driver who also like runs guns for the mobs. Great. And he gets caught up in this thing where like he owes people money and then all of his friends, you know, who's a friend, who's not a friend. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why his name is Eddie Coyle. Mm-hmm. Because slowly no, the net tightens <laughs> around <laughs> him. That's right. So Great he's movie. you know, he's he's about to go back to jail, so he's gotta decide who he trusts, who he doesn't trust. This thing is just great. Peter Boyle is the bar owner is just great too. It's I love stuff. this movie. This is really very atmospheric, cool seventies stuff, folks. Yep. You gotta go ahead and at least sure rent is. this thing. The Friends of Eddie Coyle, great uh, Blu-ray, of course, from the good folks at Criterion. A must buy. All right, with that show is over and please Thanks, Axel. Thank you, Axel. You are the man. You just made Mark's life. You gave him the greatest gift he's ever received, so thank you. And for the rest of you, please send us your gifts by way of just sending us really cool Vox boxes and emails. Uh, send it to gods at digigods.com. Again, gods at digigods.com. If you have a question you want to ask by, uh, by audio, recorded in any format, we don't care. Send us your Vox boxes. We'll, uh, we'll slot you into the show, and we'll, uh, we'll make a discussion topic of it. Uh, gods at digigods.com. Otherwise, send us your emails. We will read them on a future show. We welcome any and all questions and conversations. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you.